Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. 2019 was a wild year for weather, from record-breaking spring flooding in the Midwest to another devastating hurricane season, all while global temperatures keep ticking up and up. And we had over 80 episodes of Weather Geeks talking to scientists from all corners of the country. We covered those topics and many, many more. We are using this last episode of the year to look back at some of our favorite episodes and answer your weather science and podcast related questions to put a bow on Weather Geeks for 2019. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm so excited because we have one of our outstanding Weather Geeks producers, Heather Zahns, in the studio with us today. Good morning. I, I think she's going to be peppering me with questions, but thank you for joining us. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so how do you feel about being on Weather Geeks? Uh, since I've been working on it for like almost a year and finally actually getting to put my voice on it, it's a it's a cool experience. This is really neat. Uh, you know, you don't always you get to hear me and our guests, but Heather Zahns, Matt Reagan, Sarah Dillingham, we have an entire team that really make this podcast come to light. And before we get into uh, her asking me questions, I'm going to flip the script on oh, my man. producer here and ask Heather <laughs> how she got interested in weather. Oh, man. Um, so when I was five years old, um, a lightning strike hit the roof of my house when I was in Wisconsin. And I was just like, how does this happen? Why did this happen to me in my house? And ever since then, I was just inspired about to know why that happened. Yeah. So you are like many of us. There mm -hmm. was some experience or something in your early. That sparked it. Yeah. It's all <laughs> yeah. That pun intended. <laughs> so this is our end of the year special. We call it the year end geek out. And I'm going to pass it over to Heather because I think, you know, I'm always asking the questions. I think perhaps she's going to ask me questions That's today. That's right. Yeah. So the first one, the most hard hitting question of the podcast. How are you? How am I doing? You know, it's awesome. Um, you know, first of all, I say it's awesome because I have a job where I I don't feel like it's a job. I'm, I'm a meteorologist. I'm a professor and director of the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia. And I get to come every week and talk weather with some fascinating people. And so, you know, I'm one of these people that, you know, you hear people saying, oh, I can't wait until Friday and I need a break. But I mean, I feel like I just live weather. And that's basically how it's always been since I was in sixth grade and did my sixth grade science project. So, you know, I, I on from that note, I'm certainly fine. Uh, 
I, where I'm not fine, though, is seeing all the devastating hurricanes that we've seen in the last couple of years and some of the other things that we're seeing going on around the nation and perhaps even around the world. And I know we'll get into some of that later. Because yeah. Yeah, as much as we geek out and love weather and that's what we do on Weather Geeks, there's some real serious aspects of it as well. Yeah. When we named the podcast title Year End Geek Out, I was kind of like, yeah, we can talk about all the exciting things in weather. But then we have to realize like, oh, Hurricane Dorian happened this year. Absolutely. And like the Midwest flooding happened this year. Right. Like, wildfires in right. California, various yeah. things. So, you know, and that's one of the things when we talk about weather and, and there's a lot of popularity of, of weather and social media and, and you see sometimes even excitement about weather. And that's natural because it's just a fascinating science. Mm -hmm. But I always caution colleagues and people, weather enthusiasts that remember, we don't cheer for the storms. We don't cheer for the tornadoes and hurricanes because they actually have serious implications for right. people's lives. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I'll get to our first real question. Um, what was it like being the president of the American Meteorological Society? You know, the American Meteorological Society, or AMS, many people that listen to this podcast may not be as familiar with, with, with the broad aspects of what the AMS is, but they may see AMS by their favorite TV meteorologist name when mm -hmm. they watch the news. Uh, it is the largest professional society in the United States dealing with weather, and Interestingly enough, I got a call from the executive director saying you've been nominated to run for president. Now, again, this is a historic organization, the largest uh, organization in our field here in the U.S. And I'm at the time this relatively young scientist mm -hmm. and I'm running against this very established professor and yeah. dean at the University of Oklahoma, uh, my good friend and colleague, John Snow, who I respect and consider a mentor. And I said, well, you know, I don't think I'll run. And then I decided to go and run. And I said, that's okay, I'll run because I'm going to lose the election anyhow. <laughs> but it turns out I won the election. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, it was really neat because I mean, I, professionally, I was qualified. I just thought it was a little bit early. But, you know, I was voted on by my peers and members yeah. of the AMS. And it was an amazing experience because for that really almost couple of years, you're one year's president, one year's president elect, and then you have a following year okay. where you're still doing things on the executive council. And you're getting the shape our field in terms of policy statements, you get to plan the AMS meeting. I plan the, I don't know if people remember the snowpocalypse here in Atlanta several years ago where we had all of the snow and basically oh, yeah. the city shut down. Well, the AMS meeting that I planned the theme and ran, uh, ran the uh, meeting was a couple of weeks after that. So oh my gosh. that added a different element <laughs> yeah. to the, to the, uh, the, 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 to the conference because mm -hmm. we had the mayor coming out, city count, all kinds of people were kind of watching the weather, so to speak. So yeah. it's just a really, uh, it was an honor to be the AMS president and to actually be able to influence our field, uh, to represent it nationally and internationally. Awesome. Um, so our next question, um, is 5G, 5G really a threat to satellite weather data gathering, or is it just a storm in a teacup by Graham? I, I love the question. Thank you for that question. Uh, 5G, I mean, we, we, are, we are all on our phones. We rely on our phones. We want fastest coverage possible. So one of the things that we started to notice is that the frequencies, uh, and again, when we talk about you know, weather satellites and we talk about telecommunications, we're talking about frequencies. They're all a part of something called the electromagnetic spectrum. And one of the things that we noticed is that the frequencies that 5G would be operating at or uh, that have been allocated are very close to one of the frequency bands that many of our satellites use that are measuring water vapor. Now, let's geek out for a second. <laughs> Water vapor is a very important constituent in our atmosphere. 
here, both for weather and climate. One of the things that we do is we take measurements of things like water vapor from satellites and then we assimilate or put that into the weather models, the Euro model, the Mm -hmm. American model. And that helps us to paint a picture of where water vapor is concentrated, where there's a lack of water vapor, how it's evolving in time. And so that helps us to improve prediction of things like hurricanes or bombed storms, what we call bomb cyclones or Mm -hmm. even atmospheric rivers or flood events. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're a meteorologist. You know that precipitable water is a very strong signal of where we might have floods. So the way I have described this to help people understand, because all of us aren't satellite meteorologists, I just taught a course in it this semester at the University of Georgia. Imagine if you were sitting on a, a, a high altitude balloon and you're looking down at the city of Atlanta or a city of Denver and you're looking for your son. And your son is wearing a blue shirt and everyone else is wearing a yellow shirt. You could probably find your son pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But if your son all of a sudden puts on a yellow shirt, he kind of blends in. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of hard. And so that's what's going on with the 5G. The 5G signal will cause the water vapor signal that we get from the satellites to sort of get masked out or lost because there's so much 5G coverage. And so that's why we're concerned. NASA, NOAA, and many others have been concerned about this. But there are efforts going on with the telecommunications industry and some of our agencies to find a compromise. And that's all we want. We don't. We want 5G. I love 5G. Yeah. <laughs> but we just don't want it to interfere and, and set us back decades with our weather forecast right. accuracy. And I think that this discussion really started after um, Hurricane Michael because they were like, we were going to put 5G like towers and things in these places that were affected. And everyone's like, yeah, woo, let's do it. And then they were like, wait, this might actually cause a little bit of issues. You can't just like go throwing these towers down places like you have to know the implications of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a matter of having a conversation. I think the telecommunications industry was starting so Oh, those meteorologists—they don't want. That's not. The, that's not. <laughs> we're what so we're, pessimistic. That's, that's not what's going on at all. Just have a conversation because you know it's one of these things that there probably is a solution here. Um, just have the conversation. Just don't ram this down our throat without thinking about it because right. there are other implications. Mm-hmm. Um, so this next question from Blue Collins, uh, they said, "Are storms going to continue to amplify while also being slow moving?" Yeah, and I'm suspecting that they're talking about hurricanes since they mentioned yeah, slow yeah. moving. So let's let's talk about that because and this could be also from like a Hurricane Dorian perspective in right. terms of like storm surge and wind, or also like a Florence where it was the flooding rains that, on the coast of Carolina. That, that is correct. And I was going to mention Dorian because in 2019, one of the most significant weather makers of the year was Hurricane Dorian. Mm-hmm. And, as a meteorologist, one thing that stunned me is just how long Dorian sat over the Bahamas. Yeah. I mean, you you saw it, Heather, mm-hmm. sat there, the storm surge, the rain, the wind. Yeah. I mean, I was really concerned about the human outcome of that storm. But we've seen it also with Hurricane Florence, as you mentioned, and Hurricane Harvey uh, before that. And there actually is research by a good colleague of mine, Jim Cosin, who's up at the University of Wisconsin, that has published in the scientific literature that suggests that we are entering an era due to some of the changes we're seeing in climate where the storms are likely to slow down slow down or stall. Mm-hmm. That has serious implications because we already know that what's the dang- most dangerous aspect of a hurricane? It's the water. It's the water. Mm-hmm. And so if we are set now parking these storms at coastlines like we saw with uh, Dorian or Harvey. We also are uh, parking them in an area where they're going to see more rain, a sustained storm surge. So that really concerns me and their scientific 
scientific literature suggests that we may see it happening more frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the television aspect, like here at the Weather Channel, it's like we get so scared when these storms slow down because then we're afraid of what happens when it moves off. Because then we get the visuals of like the Harvey flooding, like people walking down the streets of Houston, like waist deep. And we're just we just can't fathom like that this imagery is real. Right. And same with Dorian, like when it finally moved away from the, the Grand Bahama Island and we were like, oh, no, like we don't want to see exactly. what's going to happen. It, I mean, I literally my, I, my 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 heart and my stomach had a I had a pit in it because I yeah. knew what we were going to see. Mm -hmm. And I have friends. I, you know, I, I went to Florida State University. So there are a lot of uh, friends that I have from the university that were from the Bahamas. And mm -hmm. I was talking to them and I knew I, I was hearing the personal stories of what their family was enduring. Yeah. Um, so next, we'll shift gears a little bit to a podcast question. Um, have you ever endured a technical difficulty when creating the podcast, like a power failure or getting disconnected? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And we have uh, David in the room with us here. He probably he's smiling here because he, I, he's our lead engineer on the Weather Geeks podcast. But by the way, big shout out to David, because you guys don't get to hear Good from job, him. I'm going to actually ask him to say hello. Hello. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, we do have some technical difficulties, but most of the time, 90% of the time, it, it, it runs smoothly. So it's, uh, of course, Dr. Shepard, he's a, a great talent. So, uh, you know, we, we trudge on even if we have technical difficulties. So. And uh, I, I agree with that, but I, you know, I'm not going to let sit here and take all of that credit. We have an excellent staff of uh, engineers here and production crew, and uh, they make things seamless. But there are a couple of times where we have trouble getting people on the phone. I think we had one incident where uh, we had uh, a guest all lined up in Colorado, but I the studio was locked. And so he <laughs> yeah. couldn't get in the studio. And so we had to reschedule the podcast. A lot of times we have the, the podcast guests right here in the room with us at the Weather Channel in the studio. Other times we're we're calling, so uh, that's that's really kind of the evolution of the Weather Channel and the Weather Geeks podcast from the television show to the longer format podcast. Yeah, uh, one I one story I want to share was uh, our normal show booker Josh was out of town, and so Sarah and I were taking the reins on booking people, and Dr. Uccellini was coming up, and we we got the we did all the work and got the studio lined up, and we called the studio the day before, and they were like, we just had a huge like virus attack. Like we have to call you back. And we're like, oh no, like we went through all the work planning and now the studio is like falling apart. Like we were just freaking out because we were like, oh no. And by the way, Dr. Louis Uccellini, who will be a guest on, or you may have heard him on Weather Geeks before and we'll have him on again, mm -hmm. is the head of the National Weather Service. So when she says they just had a major virus attack, that was on the National Weather Service. Yeah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Weather Geeks producer Heather Zahns. This is our year-end 
geek out. And we're taking your questions. Thank you all for submitting those questions through our various social media platforms on Twitter and Facebook. And if you don't follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook, hurry up and do that because <laughs> yeah. we're going to continue to geek out. The geek out's just beginning for 2020. So Heather, back to you. So this message or this question is from Brayden. What are your college recommendations for aspiring meteorologists? And I'm going to assume that Florida State University is about to come out of your <laughs> mouth. <laughs> well, you know, University of Georgia is also a good option these days also, as yes. well. But uh, yeah, I, I certainly did all three of my degrees, bachelor's, master's, and PhD at Florida State University, which has a great program. By the way, where'd, where'd you go? Oh, University of Miami. You, Miami. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, well, that just lowered the mood here, <laughs> given that I'm a Florida State alum. No, but... Yeah, let me give you some advice. I, I'm the director of a major uh, atmospheric sciences program. So I, that, that's a question I, that I get often from people that know what I do, but also just young students. One thing I would recommend, particularly if you're interested in studying meteorology, even though we love to sort of look at the wonders of hurricanes and storms and flood events, meteorology is a very quantitative science. It's based on physics, thermodynamics, dynamics. Yeah, it's not easy. It's, it's, it's actually been rated as one of the toughest majors on a college campus because of all the math and physics that mm-hmm. you have to take. Um, thermodynamics, uh, fluid dynamics, because the atmosphere is a fluid. And so we're trying to understand this fluid with heat being injected on this rotating planet with boundary conditions. So it's a lot of math. So my point in that is to be sure you're comfortable uh, with math and physics because there is a lot of it before you get to all the cool stuff. And even when you get to the cool stuff, you still have some very quantitative classes. The other thing that I would say is to don't just focus on the science, develop communication skills, speaking, writing, and also uh, skills related to GIS and oh, yeah. sociology, psychology, because the, the the field of meteorology is changing. And so you need a broader skill set than just knowing the meteorological theory. That's right. And so what, what would you add to that? Um, yeah, because if a lot of meteorologists like, or a lot of people who aren't in meteorology, they assume that meteorology is only the people who are on TV. Right. Like, or the National Weather Service. And they're only, only 8% of meteorologists are broadcast meteorologists. Right. So uh, it's a lot of people just assume that that's what you have to do, like to go on air. And that's, as you just said, that's not true. There are a lot of meteorology uh, careers outside of that. So you should, I mean, when you go to college and you're studying meteorology and there's things that you like and you find your niche, then don't be afraid to pursue that because there could be a way that you can do meteorology while doing that. Like there's like insurance companies that need a meteorologist, like the, like Delta, like there are airplanes or like airports that need meteorologists. Like yeah, there's a lot of, my, of different one of, ways. One of my former students is Emily Wilson. Shout out to Emily. He's a meteorologist at Delta. Okay. And I would also say this, there are a lot of jobs that will requ- uh, will take advantage of what we learn in a meteorology degree program that may not be obvious to people too. Environmental mm-hmm. consultants. Um, if you get, develop GIS skills, working in environmental groups for federal governments or state governments. So keep your options open. When I first went to college, everybody that came into the, the program wanted to be a teacher. TV meteorologists or work for the National Weather Service. But my students that leave the University of Georgia now, uh, they look very broadly because we encourage them to. Because one of the things that I do know from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics is the the fastest and the largest amount of growth in the job market for meteorologists and atmospheric scientists is in the private sector. Yeah, I can believe it. I'll, I'll share one story. Uh, when I was looking for colleges, um, a woman from Florida State University actually called me and she was from the meteorology department, but she told me that she is a double major in psychology because she wanted to work with FEMA and go to places that got struck by natural disasters and like help them 
like emotionally and mentally like that's what she wanted to do so she studied both meteorology and psychology to do that and I was like I thought that was so awesome that she was able to pursue that I don't I didn't follow up with her she may be doing that now I hope she is Um, but I was just like there are so many things that you can do absolutely weather touches every part of our lives yeah um this question is from Sabino will there be snow in the south with climate change yeah, there'll be snow everywhere with climate change. <laughs> one of the things that, you know, one of the things I guess I'm fairly well known for saying is that weather is your mood and climate is your personality because we always get these tweets when there's a snowstorm or a lot of snow. Like, what happened to global yeah, warming? Yeah, there's no more climate change. Yeah, you know, well, you know, my mood today doesn't tell me anything about my personality. But the reality is, and this is just very counterintuitive to people, even in a warming climate, we're still going to have winter. What? Because seasons are caused by uh, the tilt of the Earth's axis as they rotates around the planet. So when the planet is tilted away from the sun, it's receiving less direct energy. And so that that hemisphere is cooler. And so we get sort of larger shifts in weather patterns. We get more differences in temperature gradients and jet stream shifts and whatnot. So we will always have snowstorms. We will always have cold days. Uh, It's one of the most counterintuitive things to explain as a scientist that climate change doesn't mean that cold goes away. Right. Yeah. Um, so next question, we can stick with the cold, um, from Kyrie, how can we know and predict the movement of a cold front? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first of all, let's define a front. And by the way, one of my little pet peeves that we geek out, you often hear people talk about frontal boundary. Uh, the very definition of a front is that it is a boundary of different air masses. So it's kind of repetitive, kind of like heavy downpour. Uh, but I digress. Uh, one of the things that we know is that fronts are these boundaries of air masses and a cold front is a a, a front where cold air is advancing and because it's a more dense uh, air mass, it will lift warm air. And so you tend to have more convective or stormy type weather along fronts. What we do, the the way we predict not only fronts, but all weather is primarily through the use of what we call numerical weather prediction or computer models. As you heard me talk and Heather talk earlier, uh, the atmosphere is a fluid. So there are a complex set of equations, the Navier-Stokes equations and various other equations. We can take all of the observations that we get from weather balloons, satellites and ground-based observations, feed that into a model. And the model through these series of equations will predict how that fluid changes in time. So uh, the models can actually predict where that sort of mass of cold air behind the cold front is moving, uh, how it's eroding, how it's changing or modifying or warming over time. So models are very important, but the models are useless if we're not feeding it with good information or accurate data. And then the second part of the modeling equation is that we use something called data assimilation. And that's one of the reasons why the European model, you always hear about the Euro, Euro versus the American model. The European model is slightly better because they use a different way of assimilating data. So they're adding data and then they continue to add data from satellites and other uh, platforms as that data comes in. It's called called four-dimensional data assimilation. The American model uses a slightly different approach. And so uh, the, the sort of the combination of observations and the models help us to resolve these fronts. Now, I'll say one quick thing. The smaller weather phenomena, like an outflow boundary or a sea breeze front uh, from a storm, uh, those are harder to resolve because they're at a smaller scale. And so that's why we need measurements that are very fine scale to resolve some of these smaller processes. Mm -hmm. Uh, One question off the 
the list here. Um, so now it is the year-end geek out. How do you think the Euro versus the GFS battle uh, fared in 2019? You know, I think the European model, if you go back and look at the statistics, it's mm-hmm. going to still be slightly ahead. But I want to I shatter one myth here since we're geeking out. Yeah. The European model is not head and shoulders better than the yeah, American it is model. Not the elite. We're, we're not talking about a Lamborghini versus a horse and carrot. Right. I mean, we're talking about a Lamborghini versus a Ferrari. I mean, they're both world class models. And guess what? During Hurricane Dorian, guess which model had Dorian going in the, into Miami first? The, the Euro. Euro. Mm-hmm. And so it has its moments too. And there are moments where the American GFS model beats it. On top of that, we use a suite of models. We don't just have these sort of large-scale global models. Uh, the U.S. has the HRRR model. We have the NAM. There are various models that we're using. So meteorologists aren't just sort of sort of joining the Euro fan club and say, I'm going <laughs> to use the Euro model, and that's it. We're looking at all of the models, and I encourage you all to consider that. Don't just get model sort of model mania for one model. We use them all. Yeah. Um, so our next question, uh, will we ever have technology that can allow us to see tornadoes at night? It seems far-fetched, but wondering if it's possible. Well, you know, I, you know that question's an interesting one because in a, in a sense, we sort of already have that technology uh, in the fact that we have Doppler radar and now we have the dual polarimetric radar. And let, mm-hmm. me, let me explain the two. Uh, back when I was in graduate school in the late 80s, the National Weather Service was rolling out what it called its NEXRAD radar system. Uh, and this was the first generation of, of national Doppler radars. Now, the Doppler shift, what is that since we're geeking out? The Doppler shift is that you, you experience if, you, if you're sitting at a, a, a train stop and a train's going by, as the train's blowing its whistle, um, the pitch changes as it approaches, and then as it passes you, it changes in a different manner. Mm-hmm. That's the Doppler shift. We also see it with light, uh, stars, as starlight. And so what we do is the radar actually sends out a pulse of microwave energy into the cloud. It bounces off some of the raindrops. And if the raindrops are moving towards or away from the radar, the frequency is shifted some. And so we can detect that shift back at the radar and determine motion. And so that's how we can see the motion in the clouds. But dual polarimetric radar allows us to do something interesting. It's sending out a microwave wave and different polarizations. This is getting a little technical here, but vertically and horizontally oriented waves. And so as it interacts with the uh, raindrops or or even ice crystals, it sends back a different signal. And so one of the things I'm getting to with that is that we can now see something called the debris ball Mm -hmm. uh, because of something in that dual polarization radar called correlation coefficient and some of the other things that it has. So we can actually see what we think is the tornado. We're not seeing the tornado as much as we're seeing the debris being lofted in the tornado that has backscattered return to the radar. And so uh, even when we're getting tornado warnings today, many of them are being warned because of the Doppler circulation that it sees. So it may actually be what we call the mesocyclone in the supercell storm. So uh, I think we already have that technology, but who knows what what's to come in the next 20 or 30 years. That's what's so fascinating about our science. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll shift gears to a wintry question um, from John Eric. I lived in upstate New York for 10 years. We moved to Rhode Island two years ago. My question is, why does it snow less here than in upstate New York? I miss the lake effect snow. Is it because of the ocean? Well, you may be a budding meteorologist. You aren't a meteorologist (laughs) because I think you really answered your own question. Uh, When you're in upstate New York, that's really the lake effect snow belt, if you will. I know our former... Uh, 
winter weather expert here at the Weather Channel, Tom Niziel. He's he came from that area. That he he became an expert because he lived in, in the snow belt. You know. What happens with lake effect snow is because of certain fetches. When I mean fetch, I mean the direction of the wind as it blows over those great lakes. If the great lakes are not frozen yet, the the fetch of wind over that lake can cause the air to converge or come together, and that will call, cause rising motion. And it also is lifting moisture. And these are the ingredients you need for those snow squalls that you get. And so there are places downwind of the lakes that can receive feet of snow Mm -hmm. in a matter of, you know, a few, you know, minutes to hours in some cases. And Mm so as you get closer to the coast, as you sort of suspected, the the ocean waters are are a bit warmer. We all experience this. My kids want to go swimming in May as soon as our (laughs) pool in our neighborhood opens when I say the water's still cold. Right. Uh, because it has a specific heat or heat capacity. Well, the opposite happens, you know, you know, as we're coming out of summer, the water's still warmer. And so it can help moderate temperatures. And we also have the Gulf Stream. That's right. Off the coast of the U.S., eastern U.S. So that helps to moderate things. So you might see a little bit different. But when you get those big nor'easters, you're definitely going to get some snow on the coast as well. But oftentimes that snow is further inland. Uh, next question from Sierra B. What got Dr. Shepard into weather? That's a good question. I think I'm going to answer that one after the break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, geeking out with Weather Geeks producer and meteorologist Heather Zahns. And we're taking your questions. And I believe the question that we had before the break was what got me interested in the weather. Mm -hmm. This is going to sound crazy, but a honeybee. Okay, not what I was expecting. Where is he going with that one? Well, when I was about five, five in fifth grade, I, I should say a young kid, I wanted to be an entomologist. I wanted to study insects. And so I used to catch honeybees in the yard all the time and put them in these little jars and just watch them for hours. I just <laughs> did. One stung me. Oh, no. And I found out after I almost died that I was highly allergic to oh, honeybees. And so... Sixth grade science project was coming around and I needed to do a science project. I was going to do one on bees, but I said, well, I need a plan B because I'm allergic to honeybee stings. And so I found uh, weather and I built weather instruments from things around the house. And my science project was can a sixth grader predict the weather? I won the science fair, kept moving on through the ranks, did very well. And I was I was bitten at that point by the weather bug, pun intended, I guess. And you know, even at that point, I knew that I did not want to be a forecaster. I did not want to be on TV. I was more interested in the how and why. So even as a, a middle school age kid, I started researching what programs have good meteorology programs. I was from Georgia. At that time, uh, there was no undergraduate program at Georgia Tech or the University of Georgia like there are now. But Florida State University was fairly close and it was a really good program. And so that's how it all began. Nice. Um, uh, our next question um, and you can take this however you want. Um, what is your favorite hurricane of all time? Wow. Yeah. So as we were talking about at the intro of the show, I mean, hurricanes 
kill people and they change people's lives. And so I, I never cheer for a hurricane or I never kind of sit there and hope it intensifies. I always want them to weaken. But, you know, I think the hurricane that really stays with me a bit is Hurricane Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hurricane Andrew uh, devastated much of South Florida. But the reason Andrew has such a, I guess, special sort of part of my life is my for my master's thesis. Uh, you heard me talk about those NEXRAD radars. I actually, with my, my PhD advisor at Florida State, we had some of the first ever available Doppler radar data, and we had data from Melbourne, Florida. And so I, I, I helped develop some of the algorithms that track hurricanes using radar for a part of my master's thesis. And so Hurricane Andrew was a storm that we, we really focused on. And so I, I, I knew that storm in and out from just a research perspective mm-hmm. it was because it was a part of my master's thesis. So I, I think Andrew is the one that comes to mind. Um, um, but I, I, I do have to say, though, uh, Hurricane Harvey is one that also rings uh, very true to me in terms of recent times because it illustrates something's about something about hurricanes that I've talked about for years, which is don't get too focused on the category. And the reason I say that is, yeah, it was a category four when it made landfall and caused quite a bit of damage, but most of the flooding. And the devastation, it was a tropical storm. Mm -hmm. It didn't even barely have a name. And so I try and try to get people to be more aware of the impact of the storm than its category. Yeah, that kind of also can tie with the storm we had this year, Imelda, where it was right on the cusp of getting a name. There was some debate about it, things like that. But I think that it was, I mean, the impacts were going to be the same. So it didn't matter, but yeah, Harvey but, but, was but, the same. Exactly. But people respond differently. I had people telling me after uh, during Michael that, that impacted Florida in 2018. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't actually react unless it's a certain category. That's not I don't take action. Um, <laughs> we're trying to get people to sort of change because one of the things that I often say is your experience with one storm in the past doesn't prepare you for a future storm. Right. Uh, they're all different. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that if you're listening to this podcast right now, please be aware of that. And by the way, one other thing, people that are listening to the podcast in Louisiana right now may remember a storm from 2016 that flooded Baton Rouge. It never got a name. Yeah, that's right. It was never even classified as tropical, but it was a, it was something. It was a depression, but look what it did. Mm-hmm, exactly. And just going back to Andrew real quick, it's also like that was obviously the first named storm of that year. So just imagine like right off the bat getting a Category 5 hurricane uh, into South Florida. And I'm pretty sure that was like the only major hurricane that year or like a landfalling hurricane yeah, or and something. It, and it was in, it was August. So it was yeah. late. So, you know, people always ask me, well, these sort of projections for we're going to have a busy year. We're going to have 14 storms this year. It's going to be blow. Yeah, that's useful for some planning and for, for businesses. But it only it, takes it one. only takes one. Mm-hmm. Um, next question from Rebecca Sims. Can slash do water spouts move from ocean to land, turning into tornadoes? They do. We we see apps, uh, occurrences of this often where water spouts do come on land. One of the things I want to say about water spouts, I mean, I, if you Google water spouts on in, or put in YouTube water spouts, you see all kinds of people on boats. Oh, look at that cute little water spout or oh, getting so up cute. close to it or driving <laughs> their boats up to it or don't do that. No. These these things can be dangerous. They're tornadoes. They're, they're, they are. <laughs> and I, I, I've seen cases where they have moved on land and just completely uh, destroyed uh, 
tents and and people that are just kind of hanging out on on, on, on the beach. beach. So mm-hmm. um, take those things seriously. I, I've I've never seen a tornado that didn't have some element of danger to it just because it may be an EF zero or EF one. Take any tornado seriously. They're all dangerous. Yeah, I remember last year during the California wildfires, there was a like a fire NATO that spun up and it was actually rated like an EF three, I think, because of the damage that it caused. Like tornadoes can form anywhere. They may form by different processes, but they're still a tornado and they do a lot of damage. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'll, uh, again, this is the ultimate geek out here. I'm <laughs> geeking out Dr. Marshall Shepard, University of Georgia with Weather Channel and Weather Geeks producer Heather Zons. To geek out on that for a second, many of the sort of mega tornadoes that we see in Tornado Alley or even in what we call Dixie Alley now are spawned from uh, large supercell storms. Supercell thunderstorms or storms have a rotating updraft called a mesocyclone. So those are sort of what people generally think about when we think about tornadoes. But many of these uh, water spouts and even tornadoes that happen in places like Florida, uh, they spin up in a different way. They don't necessarily come from a mesocyclone and a supercell. They actually may gen- be uh, generated from interactions that are happening at the surface and mm-hmm. then get stretched upward. And so you've got sort of this whole uh, angular momentum and sort of an ice skater. So there are different types of tornadoes. So just be aware of that. Um, this question from Caitlin, how and why did you start the Weather Geeks podcast? So that's an interesting question. So first of all, let's give a little history of Weather Geeks. Shout out to Mike Chesterfield and Matt Sitkowski and uh, Chris Warren uh, and, oh, uh, Stephen Nestledge. These are some of the people that were there mm-hmm. at the beginning of the Weather Geeks. I get a cryptic email from Dr. Matt Sitkowski inviting me to lunch one day. And if me being me, I don't turn down a free lunch. So <laughs> we met at uh, Cheesecake Factory here in the Atlanta area. And they they had drawn up this idea over drinks and dinner one night for a talk show about weather. And they said, you are the former president of the AMS. A lot of people know you. You sort of have a broad knowledge of weather. Would you host it? And I kind of like what that AMS president offered. I kind of thought about it a little bit. And I was like, yeah, this could be interesting. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a have you as the sort of expert host. And we're going to have Chris Warren kind of, kind of drive the ship, so to speak. And we'll have guests come in. Well, we we did one or two shows, and even in the back of my mind, I'm saying, yeah, this is gonna this isn't gonna work. <laughs> but you know, we did ended up doing over a hundred episodes of the show, about four year run. Um, it gained gained the following, and you know, I think the Weather Channel just decided, you know, that with the shifting demographics of how people consume information now, um, we wanted a longer format with the Weather Geeks podcast. We have 40 minutes or so with the Weather Geeks TV show. It was 30 minute show, but in reality, it was about 17 minutes by the time you had the commercials. So uh, we can reach a different demographic, a broader demographic, and we can go much deeper with this format. So uh, I guess about a year or so ago, we transitioned it to a podcast and we're going strong. We got some uh, exciting new um, people on the team like yourself and Sarah Dillingham and Matt Reagan. And so I just love what's happening with the podcast and I love what you all are doing with it, particularly with the social media presence. Yeah, Um, we've like really tried to champion it in terms of just how how people consume a podcast, because it's obviously a lot different than a TV show. But it's also weird for all of us producers because we all work in TV. So now we all had to learn how how people consume podcasts, how to make a podcast and do all this stuff. Um, so it's been a real learning experience too, like learning about the weather and then also learning yeah, about that. And absolutely. Just from, and from a professional development standpoint, you yeah. guys have new skill sets too. Right. Um, this is one of our last questions. Um, what, is, what is the best weather book for an up and coming meteorologist? 
Ah, well, I could be biased and say Dr. Fred's Weather Watch by Fred <laughs> Bortz and Marshall Shepard, but that book really is targeted more at uh, younger kids. Uh, you, know, you know, I'd say elementary age kids. One of my favorite books for weather for an up and coming sort of broad con- consumption, not textbook, is still the weather book. Okay. It's by Jack Williams. It's actually issued by the American Meteorological Society. Uh, a, a previous version that I read was issued by the USA Today. It was called the USA Today Weather Book. But uh, a couple of years ago, um, uh, the, the American Meteorological Society and I believe Jack Williams worked together to produce a different version. So that's still one of my favorite sort of sort of public consumption weather mm-hmm. books as well. My good friend Dennis Mercerow, who's a fellow colleague of mine that writes for Forbes magazine, also has a really interesting weather book out there too. I don't remember the name of it. I think it's called the Extreme Weather Book, but it's something along those lines, but the name is Dennis Mercerow. It's actually a really interesting book as well. Now, if you want a more of a textbooky type uh, sort of intro text that we might use in an introductory weather text uh, at the University of Georgia, Florida State, there are a couple that come to mind. There's an introductory textbook by uh, my good colleague, John Knox, and uh, Steve Ackerman that uh, that I find useful and also Understanding Weather by Aguado and Bert. Those are the authors as well. So, But then the classic that I often, that many of us learned about or learned from uh, sort of an introductory textbook is a book, um, uh, An Introduction to Atmospheric Sciences by Wallace and Hobbes. Yeah, I have that uh, that's one That's a still. <laughs> classic book. It's a, And there are many different versions. There is a modern version of it now. So, and by the way, I mentioned the term atmospheric sciences. If you see that term, that's a broad catch-all term for meteorology, climate science, and the like. So many programs now aren't meteorology departments. They're atmospheric science. My program at the University of Georgia is an atmospheric sciences program, or you may have an earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences program. So if you're going off or you have a kid that's interested, don't just look for meteorology programs. They actually have different names now. Mm-hmm. Well, that those are all the questions that we have. Um, is there anything that you want to just put a bow on 2019. Yeah, 2019, you know, was a some ways a very typical weather year, but in some ways we saw the extremes and anomalies that always catch us off guard mm-hmm. during a given year. We continue to see the DNA of climate change in many of our weather events, whether it be some of the extreme heat waves that we're, we were seeing around the world uh, to some of the extreme rain events and even rapid intensification and stalling that we saw in hurricanes. We've got to understand that that's a new reality that, I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, the hurricanes don't care what your political beliefs are. They don't care if you're blue or red. They are going to intensify over pools of warm water. They're going to stall. And so hopefully we can kind of get beyond that and sort of understand uh, the realities of that situation. I also hope that we'll continue to in 2020 to make progress. I, I know we're going to be talking at some point to National Weather Service Director Louis Iacciolini, see where we're going with the development of the new models in the American model. Uh, new technology is rapidly coming aboard on Weather Geeks. We've talked about meso networks and four-dimensional meso networks involving drones. We've talked to companies like Climacell that are using micro-weather using, you know, networks of cell phones. So in 2020, I'm excited to see where the field of weather is going to continue to take us. And I'm, a, I'm excited to see how Weather Geeks is going to cover it. That's right. <laughs> and so th- with that, Heather, thank you for joining us thank you. on the Weather Geeks podcast. You were awesome, by the way. Thanks. Hopefully we'll have you back. And again, thank you all for joining us this year on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, you're great. We couldn't do this without you. Continue to follow us in our platforms. But guess what? Before we get out of here, we have the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This week, 
Our geek of the week is Sydney Brown from Southeastern Ohio. She has a high, she is a high school student who is obsessed in capital letters with weather to the point where she is looking at weather maps while in class. Pay attention in class, Sydney. <laughs> Her dream job is to eventually become a hurricane hunter. Someday we'll, we will be interviewing you on Weather Geek, Sydney. I know it. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next geek of the week, check out our social media pages to apply. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia.